So, I've always been a music person. A very long time ago, starting in grade school, I was a band nerd. I mean, technically, I was a jazz and classically trained percussionist. But when you're in junior high and in high school, that doesn't mean that much. So, band nerd it was. Anyway, much later, I also worked at a record store and I played in local bands. And I even started a very short-lived DJ night with a friend of mine. I'm not trying to sound braggy. What I am trying to say is I love music. It's been part of my life for as long as I can remember. And one of my favorite things was to discover music that was under the surface. Older music, bands from different countries, and most of all, stuff that sounded like it was recorded in your garage. Underground music. I was in my late teens and 20s in the early 90s, and this was a great time for this kind of music. One of my favorite things in the world was walking into a small club, seeing the flyers on the wall, the graffiti, the old posters, the smell of stale beer and cigarettes, then first hearing and seeing whatever band was on stage. And the music wasn't always good, but it was fun just to be there. And not having that available right now is kind of a bummer, but it did get me thinking about a conversation I had some time ago with a guy named Tom Murphy. Tom's been thinking and writing about underground music for quite some time now, and there's probably not many people in Denver who know more about Denver's underground scene. The thing about Denver's underground scene is there's no breakout band, there's no Nirvana, or Replacements, or Ramones, no Slater Kenny, no Tribe Called Quest. And I'm not saying that we've never had bands of equal talent, there's just something about Denver that keeps these bands from breaking through. Until relatively recently, there wasn't really any recognition of the Denver music scene at all. But Denver underground music absolutely has a sound. It has a rich and complex sound that goes back decades. People say, well, it's Gothic Americana. But I would say there's a number of strands, and whatever the sound is, it's something different. There's a quality to it that's different. But it is like shared by a broad spectrum of bands. So like you have like the 16-horsepower Denver Gentleman some people put Dvochka in there. I don't know how dark Dvochka is, you know, to be honest. But they are kind of moody and brooding, and they have that kind of, like, dark quality to it. And I think that's true, dark, melancholic quality to it, which I think is something that's common to a lot of Denver music. That's, like, one underlying quality to not all of it, certainly. Like, there's celebratory bands that are definitely, like, Denver. But I think that quality is def one element of it. Before we get to this Denver sound, there's a band that I wanted to mention that was almost big, The Fluid. I remember seeing a marquee here way back in the early 90s where The Fluid was heading up a bill with a new band that was opening for them called Nirvana. The Fluid was one of the big ones out of there, and they were like kind of a garage rock band, kind of a punk band, kind of a grunge band that influenced the grunge scene in, in Seattle to some extent, and vice versa.
to my young ears, the fluid really did sound like they came from Seattle. In fact, I remember being surprised that they were from Denver as I came upon them by way of Mudhoney and those other grunge bands. So if we're going to pick up a band that sums up Denver's Western Gothic sound, to me, it's 16 horsepower. Sixteen horsepower was a dark Americana, like spiritual conflict lyrics kind of band. Really powerful stuff. I always found it interesting that this darker sound came from Denver, a generally happy place with friendly-ish people. I think the Denver, uh, that kind of melancholic, dark tone, undertone to a lot of Denver music, I think comes from not a reaction to like it, there being like, what is it, like 300 days of sunshine a year, some, or more than that a year. I think it comes from being isolated from a lot of different places. Like the impacts come here slower, not now as much, but um, from other places like, uh, what's the next big city? Eight, you can drive eight hours and go to Salt Lake City or Albuquerque and nothing against us. I love Albuquerque. Salt Lake City is one of the weirdest places I've ever been in. But going east, what? You have to drive like eight, nine, 10 hours to get to Omaha or like, you know, Kansas City. So people who are, who are here, who are maybe creative, have to turn inward a little bit for inspiration, I think. And uh, that results, I think, in, in some being, being that reflective and needing to rely on yourself and maybe a few friends, you know, who are other creative weirdos. Um, it, 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 in a way, you're kind of forced into like this insular existence in a way. And I feel like that has resulted in some of the kind of music that we have here. Tom is a huge champion of this kind of underground music. Music he feels hasn't quite gotten its due nationally. Like when people think of Denver, like when I went to college in the Midwest, people were like, oh, do you wash up at the stream and eat granola? And I was like, uh, I live, I'm from Aurora, Colorado. It is civilization, tentatively speaking, right? We have sidewalks and a, tra- a mass transit system. Was it like a cultural mecca? No. Not like New York or like San Francisco. We're not talking like that. Like, come on. People have these misconceptions like, oh, for it to be authentic Colorado, it has to be some like country thing. And I think that has influenced people's minds and thinking only Gothic Americanas are the Denver sound. Like, oh, it fits in my like uh, mythology of the Old West. And like, it hasn't been the goddamn Old West since what? 
I don't know, the early 20th century at the best, maybe late, maybe late 19th century. It's not that place. It's not like, there are no cowboys riding their horses down the street, lassoing, you know, little doggies. It doesn't happen. And if we ignore this interminable COVID break, Denver's music scene is still going. I think some people think that the underground is gone in Denver because they were either never part of it or they were, but they aged out of it. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. But I think partly because people don't know that it's still there and it takes some effort to really connect with it. And I think that's worthwhile and it's going to be increasingly easier. Like, uh, like after the ghost ship fire happened and people died and it's tragic and it's going to affect people probably for the rest of their lives, including me. Um, that resulted in all these DIY venues kind of like going away, right? But it forced some of them to be to go above ground, and be so they're more accessible to a new generation of people. And I think that, to some extent, is going to help preserve an underground thing where people go to it and they go like, "Well, this isn't this overprocessed thing that is being shoved down my throat most of the time." And and they can discover and connect with people who who. Uh, are making the kind of stuff they want to do or maybe form their own bands or artist collectives or whatever, that it's going to be a new, like a new wave of interesting stuff going on. Maybe not like now, maybe not in five years and 10 years, maybe. And so I think that's, that's probably good. And it's stuff that we're, maybe no one will ever hear about unless you go there and be and are part of it, you know? And uh, yeah, I think, uh, so I don't think it's dead. Like, People want to declare something dead, like rock is dead, right? That's the one. Because it's not selling as much and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, but, you know, it can be exciting, right? right. <laughs> it can still be valid and interesting and innovative and forward thinking and all that stuff and innovative and doing stuff and no one's predicting. It can all do that. And I think uh, that like, kind of reinvention is, like belies like uh, an ingrained cynicism, I think, that people have. They're like, well, going back to like, I don't want to learn anymore, so I'm going to declare this the best period. And I'm like, eh. Gotta be, believe in yourself a little bit, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Give yourself better for the doubt that you can learn new things too and take new things in and like be excited about something. Not because it fits in with what I already know and what I think is good, but like, oh, this is expanding my mind. And I think uh, Underground does that a little bit better because it's not as processed. There's, it's not all thought out. It's not all like there's no marketing involved. People are just make, and maybe there is subliminally, but you know what I mean. Like, there's a chance, a greater chance of finding something ex- interesting. So, on that note of optimism, when the world begins to open up again, go see a local band or two, or go see a show a week. And thanks to Tom Murphy for chatting with me about all of this. You can find more of his work at Queen City Sounds and Art Online and in Birdie Magazine, where he writes a monthly column. He also does these little capsule reviews slash write-ups on Instagram, which are absolutely worth your time. I'll have links to all of this in the show notes, of course. 
Our next story is very much centered in the world of sound and Colorado as well. This is a story that was aired on an excellent local Denver podcast called Range and Slope. It's by my friend Matthew Simonson. And well, you know what? It's better if you just listen for yourself. Here's Matthew. Bruce Odland and I are at Red Rocks Amphitheater on a hot August day. A band has just started a sound check for tonight's concert. There are tourists everywhere, and like me, they're staring at Bruce, watching him hit a woodblock to make that ticking sound, wondering what the hell he's doing. 12 rows behind the sound man, seat 80. This is just one stop on a tour Bruce is making all across Colorado, one of 13. I ask him what will end up being a recurring question over the next two weeks. So how was that? What'd you hear? Oh man, you could hear like a very crude bat, you know? Like a very crude bat. You, you hear the first reflection, that's the thing you're closest to. You hear the second reflection. You can hear them phasing in a very noticeable way until you find the center point between these two tall rock faces, which have different characteristics and angles. And then when you get towards the front, you hear the reflection of the beautiful thing, the reason why the stage is here, that uh, band, natural band shell starts to reflect towards you too. And row 12, seat 80 is in the center of all that, and that's a great place to be. Bruce has found the ideal spot to record today via echolocation, or at least that's what he says. It's not that I don't believe him, it's just that's the kind of thing that seems like a superhuman skill. Bruce doesn't think so. Because people have echolocation in their ears as part of their operating system, right? Hunter-gatherers, survivors, we just have it all shut down, but it doesn't take much to bring it to the foreground and activate it. Really, nothing but listening having an offer from something that makes sense instead of just air conditioning and trucks, other things you want to shut out. So how do you make I nod my head, but at this point, I'm still not sure I fully understand. That's sort of why I'm here, following along on his tour. Bruce is a sound artist and self-proclaimed sonic thinker. I want to know what that actually means. I want to listen to the world like he does. There's a draw to Bruce, Hearing him talk and watching him work, it's sort of half meeting a kindred spirit, half observing an alien species. Bruce is somewhat aware of this. You find yourself in these positions that are quite unusual, and then you look like a goofball, and then when somebody puts on the headphones to see what you're doing, they realize you're a wizard. Is that how you feel? Like a I'm wizard? a goofball wizard myself. <laughs> At 6 a.m. the next day, we arrive at our next stop, Cave of the Winds in Manitou Springs. Here, Bruce will record Inea Lujan, a singer-songwriter from nearby Pueblo. Watch your shoulders, too. We haul guitars and microphones and cameras into the cave. Bruce resists the urge to hit the stalactites with mallets. He's got a job to do, and only a couple hours to do it before the cave opens to the public. It's the same four tasks at every stop. One, listen to the land and make a recording, an ambient recording of a place. 
Two, activate the space with a clap that is pretty much the same from place to place. So when we hear a sequence of these claps, we'll learn all about the acoustics of every place. Three. Go ahead and roll. I, I, I'm wanting to know. Have the musician respond to the environment with whatever they choose. What it is about what is going to come out of you at this place? Can't let go. Four. A click track that I made on some artificial vibraphone with a couple little tones in D major. So in each place they would put this in their ear and for four minutes they'd play with something that had intent but no clear endpoint. Because every musician is being recorded at the same tempo and in the same key, Bruce is thinking that later he can sync them up. That way they'll all sound like they're playing together. With all the participants from around the state blending together in this uplifting beauty at the end. At least, that's the hope. Bruce is fairly sure this will all work. He is a wizard, after all. But he doesn't know. The entire project is a big experiment, and Bruce has a level of faith that it'll all work out that would give me a panic attack. The idea for the piece came to him in a dream, the night before they left on the tour. I started to hear this chorus in my dream, and it was I couldn't get back to sleep, so I thought, okay, I'll get up and I'll write it down. So I got up and I wrote it down, and it was in D major. And I never showed it to anybody. <laughs> I, I let them play what they wanted instead, of course, which is much more beautiful. But Bruce is no amateur. In fact, this tour is part of a long artistic journey, a fascination with sound, place, culture, and community that goes back to 1970s Colorado. When he first landed here, he embarked on a sound art project he described as a symphony of natural sounds. I, I purchased an early Nakamichi recorder and went up into the mountains in the winter and got melting snow and uh, I was thinking, oh yeah, if you magnified it sufficiently, pine needles would vibrate like oboe reeds. And the closer you go to the white noise of the stream, the more it breaks down into a series of melodic ripples. And if you get really close, you can get a single melody and rhythmic stream coming out of that, which is absolutely quite gorgeous. So I was in Colorado as, I don't know, maybe 23-year-old with, with no cred, with no track record, and with no money, flailing about knowing nothing about how to actually pull this off. I just had the idea. While he was recording sounds and looking for funding, he met the director of the Colorado Council on the Arts and Humanities. And he heard me out and he said, that's fabulous, and one day maybe you'll be able to do that, but I have something for you right now. That something was Chautauqua. Colorado was one of the first states to make an arts agency. The Council on the Arts and Humanities had to build the network they needed to give grant money from scratch. 
They started by putting on a summer tour that went all over the state, performing and promoting the arts. They called it Chautauqua. 1976 was an especially big year. It was the state's centennial and the nation's bicentennial. The whole state was ready to celebrate, and the council had a lot more money than usual to do something big. So they gathered all kinds of artists. Bluegrass bands, puppeteers, dancers, mimes, even a guy who played musical saw, and a young sound artist. This seemed like a good gig. I could go on tour and I had my summer covered and I would end up with a little nest egg. That would be sweet. And on the way, I would have an experience. Little did I know what an experience it would be. The council sent 60 artists to 18 towns like Yuma, Holyoke, Mancos. Some of these places hadn't had events like this since vaudeville times. In each town, there'd be four days of tent shows, workshops, plays, constant entertainment and interaction. It was a serious intrusion and intervention into the cultural life of each place that we went. The mix-up of people was just fantastic. Everybody was working with everybody. I'm, I'm playing guitar with the flamenco group, and uh, so-and-so with the trombone starts to sit in with the Cleo Parker dance ensemble. Uh, I spend an afternoon learning how to do stained glass with Paul, and uh, Leah would have a whole bunch of, of ladies in the town and teaching them to belly dance underneath the big old cottonwood trees. There was a lot of crosstalk between the artists, between the people in the towns, everybody joining in. Amazing things happened all along the way, every, every town that we went to. And people were free-spirited and a bit wild by today's marching orders. Uh, we were just doing our thing. And we were doing it to the max. This is the first time I've ever uh, seen a mine. <laughs> oh, you'll like it. It's really different. I decided to go around the places where we were and record what they sounded like and make collages out of them that were somewhat musically rhythmic or edited enough that they became something, a collage. This is a tour of the Climax Mine near Leadville, uh, July 27. 76. So I would go, like, for instance, in Leadville, making a composition out of, out of shaker tables and rock crushers and the filtration units that all had their different types of sounds. And then playing this thing back as a musical piece, play their town back to the people so they could hear their town as, a, as music in a way. I just remember a line of molybdenum miners standing around in the back and hearing that shaker table number 12, you know, there's the crusher. They could, couldn't imagine hearing the sounds of their work as music. They were delighted. They were as if it was a hip hop band or something, you know, but that's their world reflected to them. It was pretty marvelous. What a way to get to know a state. These, re these have a relationship together, and so you can stand here and here, be in the middle of this harmonic. So it's very experiential. Wow. 
Come and give it a try. I meet back up with Bruce in Pagosa Springs, at the home of another sound artist. Ross Bearable is showing us bells and wind harps he's molded from titanium. The group takes turns standing with our heads inside the bells as they ring. Since I last saw him, Bruce has recorded a saxophone duo, a small choir, and a crude banjo he made by wiring harpsichord strings to an old door. I don't think Bruce ever really stops sound gathering. He told me after Chautauqua, the sound pieces he had been working on started to open doors at the Denver Art Museum. He investigated everything he could get his hands on with open ears. Sonic archaeology is a field now, but it wasn't then. I was just following what made sense to me, right? It's like, hey, we have these things. We don't know what they are. Do you think they're musical instruments? Take a look. And ting, ting, ting. Wow. This obsidian dagger is actually a lithophone. Listen, it's tuned and it's... Really? Yeah. Do you have any more? Yeah, we have all set. Oh, great. Let's bring them out. Okay. So I got into wheeling around all these objects and being able to take them out into the stairwell where it was resonant. And and these things were mind-blowing. This led to excursions to ancestral Pueblo and sites all across the Southwest, listening to the desert environment and the acoustics of their ancient dwellings. This is a profoundly important part in my development as an artist to understand not all people live in bad-sounding rectangular rooms like Europeans. There's round rooms, there's parabolic structures, there's a lot of other things we could do besides repeat simple shapes that are easy to make that are bad-sounding shapes. You know, so... It was a real revelation for me to uh, experience something that actually works and opens up the whole brain to possibilities with sound. And so that was very, very important for me. So I'm back. Okay. Hey, Ross. Let's try it like this with one earpiece in your ear. Which one do you want to hear the click and which one do you want to hear the... Just like that, Bruce flips into work mode. I'm on his time, so follow-up questions about ancient parabolic structures will have to wait. He walks through his ideas and philosophies as though I'm in his head with him, and I try my best to keep up. But I haven't been able to pull the curtain back all the way. I stay quiet in this mystical middle ground. As Ross records his bells to Bruce's click track, I learn the tour has been pretty relentless. Bruce has been running himself ragged. We're almost at the end of the tour, and he's still not sure how much of what he's recorded will be usable. We haven't had time to actually explore that or barely look back at anything we've done. So there's a lot of collecting in good faith and not much um, looking over our shoulders. We'll know the fate of this experiment soon enough. We have more sound to gather. Tonight, the wind will pick up and Ross's harps will start to sing. Bruce and I both set up our microphones so we can capture the night. Later, I'm worried. The rest of the group is being too loud. The crickets might be overpowering the harps. Did I put the mics in the right place? I came all this way. There's nothing but wonder in Bruce's eyes. Every sound is just part of the environment, a playground to explore. He passes me his headphones so I can hear what he hears.
Okay, and that means we can mute this. It's the last day of the tour in Rangeley, Colorado, and time for Bruce to furiously edit. Inside a shipping container turned recording studio, he hears everything together for the first time. So let's see what that sounds like. shaping but there's a lot there to work with okay so there's some who's next we're at a really special place for sound right across from the studio there's a giant empty water tank known simply as the tank every sound you make inside of it gets drenched with this ethereal reverb Bruce is going to record here tonight, but right now, the group is setting up to fly a drone with a camera on it. It's taken hours to get the lighting right for this shot, and I've been waiting to hear what the whirring propellers sound like in that big acoustic chamber. Finally, we're ready to launch. drone glitched, clipped a propeller on the ceiling, and crashed to the floor. Crazy things happen in the tank's half-inch steel walls. But in here, even a disaster sounds pretty amazing. In the aftermath, I can't help but think about how crazy it is that I'm here. I've lived in Colorado all my life, and I never even heard of Ragely. Bruce could have just composed the piece he heard in his dream and left it at that. But he's a goofball wizard, an artist who interacts with the sounds of the world around him. And in that world are millions of happy accidents waiting to take you to people, places, ideas you never knew existed. Even this tank, it's one of the happiest accidents of Bruce's life. He first encountered it back on that 76 Chautauqua, where the goal was just to interact with the people of our state. He worked with the town to preserve it and made it into a place where people like me can step inside 43 years later and enter another world, his world. I left Bruce long after midnight while he was still editing not yet able to hear the final piece. But I left a little bit more a sonic thinker, a little bit more a witness to wizardry. The experiment was a huge success.
Matthew Simonson is a radio storyteller living in Denver. You can reach him at matthew at foundsound.media. And if you like that story, you can find more from Matthew, as well as producers Paul Caroli and Ray Solomon, on the award-winning podcast Range and Slope, located on the World Wide Web at rangeandslope.com. And that's it for today. This show is produced and edited by me, Mr. Josh Madison. If you are interested in what you've heard, or, or you think you want in on the action... What? In on the action? It talks like that. Anyway, if you've got a thing you think would be good for this little show, or if you just want to say hi or something, let me know at denverorbit at gmail.com, and also on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Low Orbit Podcast. Yes, there will be links in the show notes, and we will see you again in just a few weeks. 